live from the deck at Broadcast House, it's Lunch on the Deck with Jessica Ambrose and Bill Evans. Yes, it's my favorite time of the day. It's when we get to start lunch on the deck. Bill Evans, Jessica Ambrose, and our guest who we've been dying to meet, Lindsay Parker. Lindsay Parker! Thank you for the introduction and the applause. Well, I got to tell you, we felt really, really badly that we had postponed our interview with you, but due to Bill had to be up north and I had to be here, and now we are both in the same house and can do this with you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it was worth the wait. Well, we (laughs) definitely think so. Thanks, Lindsay. Tell us a little bit about yourself first. Oh, uh, well, my name is Lindsay Parker. Actually, we are we are SiriusXM co-workers because I host Volume West, which is the, I guess, L.A. drive time show. It's 4 to 6 p.m. on Mondays and 5 to 6 the other days of the week on Volume. Nice. Channel 106. Getting oh. the branding in there. And obviously, Volume uh, plays Lunch on the Deck, so we're, we're sort of co-workers. Yep. And I'm also the music editor at Yahoo Entertainment. I've been doing that for pretty much since the internet existed really? for a long time. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally since 2000. One, oh my God! So yeah, I've yeah. seen a lot of changes in the internet world, and before that, I worked at record labels. But I'm, uh, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, always been into music. And then I wrote this book with Mercy Fontenot from the GTOs, which is very LA centric. Called full title is Permanent Damages: Memoirs of an Outrageous Girl. And the GTOs were, you know, the the original Spice Girls, in my opinion, the underground avant garde. Spice Girls curated by Frank Zappa and a lot of good LA stories in here. So uh, I'm excited to, yeah, talk about how our lives intersected and everything. You got to meet her and talk with her prior to her passing, right? Oh, I mean, that's an understatement. We, we I don't think we really had like a normal um, author, co-author relationship. We were friends first. Um, through Pamela Debar, who I'm sure you probably know, yep. probably the world's most famous groupie, wrote one of the greatest rock and roll books of all time. Right. I'm with the band, so I had yeah. a high standard to live up to, although Mercy's story and book are very different. And Pamela in L.A. is known for having these crazy, amazing backyard parties. You'll go there and like Weird Al and Elvira and Sparks and Johnny Eccles from Love and her ex-husband Michael DeBar and bands will play in her backyard. She has these epic parties and Mercy would always be there holding court and wearing, you know, 10 belts, 18 scarves, (laughs) and entire support (laughs) counter on her face. (laughs) Who's that? We just created some weird bond. People often used to think we were mother and daughter and I kind of wore her down. She would tell these stories holding court at parties or really anywhere she went about hanging out with Graham Parsons or uh, Al Green yeah. or, or whatever, and or X. She, she had many lives. She started off in the Haight-Ashbury scene, moved down to LA, joined the GTOs, married Suggy Otis, right. kind of had a second life in the punk rock scene of the 70s, uh, dated Arthur Lee, got super into drugs, got sober. So I was just like, where's your book? And it took a few years. But eventually, and then it took longer than I thought. I, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I spent <laughs> probably about 80 hours interviewing her for this book. So we wow. became very close. Very sadly, she she died in July 2020 um, of cancer. She was ill while making the book, which I think is why she kind of thought, okay, maybe I should. And yeah. uh, so the book came out. We announced the book that was coming out the day after she died, and it came out in June of last year. Wow. But I know it's gotten a lot of accolades. I know 
she's happy. Yeah, yeah. So tell yeah, me something, though. I love the part that you said in the forward. You were writing about the fact that she just wanted to have fun, which I completely relate yeah. to. I just love that about her. But then you kind of wore her down and told her <laughs> her stories of alcoholism, abuse, and all mm -hmm. of that other stuff, even though it wasn't fun, were stories worthy of telling, right? Yeah, that's actually the thing that was interesting is, yeah, in the forward, you know, or I'll just say like when kind of early on in the book writing process, I said to her, what's your, what do you want people's takeaway to be from this book? Like, you know, what do you, and she's like, I don't know, I guess I just want it to be fun. And I'm like, you were homeless, you were crack addict, <laughs> oh. you had, you were in some abusive situations, you right. had a really dysfunctional childhood. But the thing was, she actually really did think her life was fun. She did not. Some of the most interesting stuff in this book, I don't want people to think it's all dark stuff. There are a lot of fun stories. Yeah. Some of the most interesting stuff isn't the fun stuff. That was what I had to convince her, that some of those stories were going to be the most relatable. But she did not feel sorry for herself. She did not look back on her life as a tragic case. And when she, you know, she took ownership of some of the mistakes she made in her life. But at the end of the day, she really thought her life was fun. And the, I think the best takeaway, she died at 71 is one time I asked her what was the best period of her life. And like I said, she'd been in all these amazing scenes. She'd been in Jimi Hendrix's movie, Rainbow Bridge. She'd had so many adventures. And I said, what was the favorite period of your life? And she kind of thought for a second. She went, I guess now. She's like, now is my favorite period of my life. And we think we could all learn something from that. She was not, she was nostalgic, but she didn't go like, like the best years of her life had passed her by or anything like that. She still went out to shows all the time, was still into very current music as well as older music. She was, she was very hip. Now, I take it that you were not born yet when their music came out. You look very, <laughs> you look very, very young. But Well, thank you so much. Did, did, I enjoy, I'm really enjoying being on this show now. Because so, <laughs> we're really, really old and we're jealous. So we, you, but, you know, I was saying that I was, I was around in 1968, but I was enamored with Michael Jackson and the Monkees and, and oh, yeah. not, not so much the, the West Coast music scene. And I'm learning mm -hmm. so much by having read your book. But Thanks. when you heard about her, when you first met, you didn't really know a whole lot about her. And then I, I take it at some point you became enamored with, wow, this woman has really been around. Well, I did know a bit about her because of my friendship with Pamela Barr. I knew her as a member of the GTOs. Right. You know, the GTOs I know because I'm with the band was a very formative book I read in my teens. The uh -huh. fact that I, you know, developed a friendship with Pamela Barr, who I should say wrote the afterword of this book. Yep is really cool. Yeah. Uh, so I knew about the GTO stuff. What I didn't know is that she was such a zealot when I was like, wait, before you even came to LA, you were like, you were on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1968 because you were at the first B-in and you were like hanging out with the Coquettes and you were, you know, hanging out at the Fillmore as a teenager and you were like this style star. And then I didn't realize she had this, you know, Suggy Otis thing and she had a child with Suggy Otis. And then I didn't realize she had this whole second life in her later 20s where she was very immersed in the LA punk scene here and hanging out with X and the gears and the germs and doing people's hair and very much in that scene like what I started to realize was wow a lot of people probably only know her as you know a member of the GTOs which is an important part in in music history but right. that she was constantly reinventing herself and she you know also had this whole other time where she like randomly hitchhiked out to Memphis and totally got into that scene, was hanging out with Al Green and Tony right. Hodges. Just, she always said she went to where, this is the term she used, where the energy centers were. So she went to where she thought she had a, she should have gone into A&R, honestly, if she, yeah. she really should have. She had a good sense for that. So that was the thing is I had no idea 
that she was just this person that just kind of seemed to be everywhere at the right place at the right time or wrong place at the wrong time, depending on how you want to see it. And uh, so that was the thing that I dove into that I thought was really interesting. I think some of the most interesting rock and roll stories, I mean, of course, reading a book about, you know, the memoirs of Keith Richards or Bruce Springsteen is going to be yeah. fascinating. But some of the most fascinating stories are the ones where you're like, I, I kind of want people to read this book and go, how did I not know about this yeah. person? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was everywhere. I yeah. should know about this person. Well, right. That's so, kind of the way I, I felt when I started to read your bio and then start to read the book. And I thought, <laughs> how is it that I didn't know exactly who this was or that I don't know more about the GTOs? The GTOs are a fascinating phenomenon. The thing that, you know, in a nutshell, Frank Zappa... You know, these were girls. They used the word groupies. I don't really think that is like the the best term. They were like seamsters. They were it girls. A term today that people might use is they were influencers. You know, they were just around. Yeah. Yes, they dated and shagged guys, but it was it went beyond that. They were like really fixtures in the scene. Style stars just looked awesome, looked like Bellini film characters come to life. And Frank Zappa decided to put them together into a girl group. And the thing that's crazy is he had them write their own songs, you know, with varying degrees of success. I may be biased, but I actually think Mercy's two songs that she contributed were the better songs. So they actually had some structure. A lot of them were more like spoken word vignettes. Right. But he didn't give them songs. He basically gave them assignments and go ahead and write a couple songs and come back to me. And then he put them in the studio with people like Rod Stewart and Lil George and Jeff Beck. Nice. And, and, you know, obviously he had quite a Rolodex and made this very experimental, bizarro album. It's been out of print for a long time, but actually Amit Zappa, who, you know, obviously is his son and, and the executor of his estate, has plans to reissue it, which is, is exciting. Right. And that album was called Permanent Damage, which the book is named after. The first song that you have here for us to play is I've Got a Paintbrush. <laughs> yeah, that, that one is, okay, there were two songs that she wrote. One is called Shock Treatment, yep. which has Rod Stewart on it before he was actually famous. And then he had a, a paintbrush in my hand to, to color a triangle. That right. was the title that Mercy wrote this one. I think she wrote it out on the street in Sunset Boulevard, just frantically writing uh, lyrics down. And one of the songs was written about a love triangle that, uh, that didn't actually happen in real life called uh, this is, I believe, the one. One of them is called Shock Treatment, and it's inspired by when she saw Keith Richards get electrocuted on stage. This one, I've got a paintbrush, <laughs> is about an imagined... Yeah, that actually happened up in Northern California. Uh, this one, I believe, is about her imagined love triangle with Brian Jones, who she idolized and met when she was a teenager. Here we go.
All right, Lindsay, to me. <laughs> Lindsay, to me, that sounds like that's got a little Frank Zappa in it a little bit, don't you think? Totally. Abs absolutely. So, like I said, this was inspired by Brian. Uh, imagine a uh, love triangle with her then boyfriend, or Bernardo Saldana, who was a BTO, boys together outrageously. The GTOs were the girls together outrageously. And Brian Jones. So when it says boy of ivory skins, if you could yeah. figure out what she was singing. Right. Eyes of sea green, hair of pale gold, that's him. Lil George actually from Lil Fee actually plays on this and she yeah. would go rehearse the song with him, with him playing the piano. And there's actually, if you go on YouTube, an unreleased demo of his version of the song, which, you know, obviously might sound a little more professional than that. But these <laughs> you know, these chicks were raw. These it's were not real music. They were not real musicians and they weren't necessarily pretending to be. Right. They were like outsider artists. And yeah, Frank but Frank Zappa kinda just threw them in the studio and said, do your best. And uh so, you know, that's her singing, and she gave it a go. The other one, like I said, is Rod Stewart on it. There's a funny story yeah. about that. Well, too. I want to hear, okay, we're going to have to play that other song, because first yeah. I want to hear from you. What happened to Mick Jagger? No, it was Keith Richards that got shocked. Keith Richards got shocked. He got electrocuted on stage in Northern California <laughs> oh, at a concert that they went to, and he was, like, rushed to the hospital. He was obviously okay. He right. survived worse. But he, well. it, you know, just like a weird thing with, like, um, the, uh, you know, electricity on stage. Sure. And, oh, well, yeah, in those days, the you, know, you had amplifiers and wires, and but it was I all very... I think of that all the time now, and new. Bill knows I have a paranoia about lightning, but you think about it now with the amount of people that go on stage in the pouring rain, oh, with sure. all these electrical stuff, like... Wouldn't you be a yeah. little wary? Yeah, well, you know, that's Keith Richards. He's still alive. You can't kill him. <laughs> yeah, it happened in Sacramento in the late 60s when before when Mercy still lived up north and actually her and her friends got in the car and, like, followed the followed him to the hospital because they were crazy fans even then. Right. He, was, he was okay, and then she later, later inspired the song Shock Treatment, which was the other song she contributed to the album by the GTO's Permanent Damage. And the funny thing about that one was, as I mentioned, Rod Stewart's on it. And Jeff Beck was there and he brought Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart wasn't really that famous yet. And he was not supposed to be on the album and he was like tagging along. And he, as Mercy tells the story in the book, had a big ego and was pouting yeah, yeah. that he wasn't being asked to sing on the record that he was sort of just there as a hanger on. Rod Stewart was, was pouting. Yeah. This was at the time yes. of all the faces he yeah. was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is like 1968. So... So anyway, he was kind of pouting and given a little tantrum. So finally, Mercy was like, fine, just go ahead. Oh, that's And then he so started funny. to sing, and she was like, oh, actually, why don't you just sing the whole song? And there are a couple um, maybe not official Rod Stewart compilations that this song is on, and she, she was, according to her book, still waiting for her royalties from those. But uh, she was that's like, right. Rod, Rod, where's my money? Right. But the, the story I like best about it, she and Rod were actually pretty good friends in the 60s. And then, you know, he became a big star and she went into some dark times. And the story I like best about it is in the 90s when she was homeless and pushing a shopping cart. She was living in Hollywood. And still, like, dressed like a kind of kooky bag lady. She, as she said, she always looked cute, even when she was homeless. And <laughs> she saw him going into the Pantages Theater on Hollywood Boulevard to some premiere. Somebody at this point in the 90s, you know, he's one of the biggest, richest rock stars in the world. Yeah. And she saw him, and she was like, you know, Rod, Rod, hey, it's me. And he ignored her. This is her story. And I was like, and she's like, I know I'm supposed to be ashamed. Like, he's gone on to this great success. I'm at rock bottom or whatever. And she's and I'm like, didn't that make you feel bad when like he didn't say hi to you or whatever? And she was like, no, why should I feel bad? She's like, I still look cute. 
Like she had no shame. Right. She was, she was yeah. like, oh God, Rod. You know. yeah. And I, I so love they, her. They, I know, <laughs> but they were good friends after he sang on this song, and it was, you know, like I said, she she saw the talent in him. Like I said, she really should have gone into A and R. Here we go. This oh, is one boy. minute and forty five seconds of shock treatment. I want to. Pl- I'm going to back that up, Lindsay. All right. I want to hear that again. Here we go. Right. Here's, <laughs> awesome. Here's, well, l- listen to Rod's voice. Right. Listen to how pure that is in his early years. I mean, he really had some yeah. some real pie. I mean, you know, now we're down here in Florida, and we keep hearing Rod on the Legend Station, you know, <laughs> singing yeah, all the, the he's, crew, he's singing the crooner songs now, you know, he's, he's doing all yeah. those standards. Yeah, he wasn't supposed to be on that song, and, you know, he just started going up to the mic and doing that, and she very, you know, kind of wisely backed away from the mic and was like, you, you know, you got this, Rod, and uh, that was the result. That is, is that how they put that whole album together? Is Zappa well, sitting in there too, and they're doing that whole thing? I mean, like I said, Jeff Beck was on yeah. it. Uh, Lowell George was on it. There were just all of his associates. You know, like I said, he had you know he, at that point in the '60s, Frank Zappa and his log cabin up in Laurel Canyon. He could invite anyone he wanted, and they, you know, they those of course, obviously, you know, they were probably needed because, as I said, these women were not musicians nor claiming to be. And a lot of the songs on the album are more like spoken word sketches or whatever they did only like one show at the shrine auditorium with wild man fisher and alice and alice cooper right and there's very little footage i don't i don't think there's any footage of it there's photos of it but you know there was a lot of hype around the these girls they did not look you know they were the spice girls of some people and, and the gtos even though they only had one album and broke up almost as quickly as they began. It's kind of Mercy's fault they broke up. Who owns got- the the rights to all that now? Is that Ahmed Zappa owns has all that? 
Yeah, they, it was on Straight Records, which you know put out actually put out the first um, Alice Cooper albums, and, right. and Alice Cooper and, and Mercy were very close. Mercy is still convinced that Alice Cooper stole her makeup ideas from him. <laughs> she's she, she's got that her. real dark eye makeup around her eyes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's she's convinced that you know, and all the GTOs had interesting eye makeup, but that was definitely Mercy's trademark. She thinks Kiss stole her makeup. She thinks Courtney Love stole her makeup. <laughs> I definitely think she was an influence style-wise, you know, and right. she wore that kind of eyeliner right to the very end, even when she was sick with cancer and had no hair. She was still wearing the eye makeup. But Alice Cooper, anyway, uh, and her were very tight because they were in that zappa world and it was straight records and and the as i said the album has been out right. of print for a while if you go on discogs or whatever it'll go for hundreds of dollars but i know Ahmet has plans to reissue it in in some way and one of the last video interview mercy ever did was something that he, she did for the plans like on you know for that release right i i always thought courtney's eyes were that way naturally but uh <laughs> i love courtney love by I the do way too. And I, actually i do too fun Fun story is when there was a long time ago. I don't know why I'm with the band by Pamela DeBar never got made into a movie. Longer story for another time. But it, <laughs> there were many times when it was supposed to be. Right. And when Courtney Love, before she was real famous, when she was just like a local girl, she called, Mercy was living with Pamela and she called Pamela's house to talk to Mercy because she'd heard they were making it into a film and Courtney Love wanted to play Mercy in the film, which I think would have been amazing casting. Wow. I'm real sad that never happened, but oh, I would yeah, love that to see. Yeah, that would have been great. Yeah. So now the rest of the I songs you picked out are, are the songs you picked out for the for the rest of the, the show here. They're yours or they're Mercy's or they got a mix? They're, they're all Mercy's. They're all, I mean, if you see if the list I've sent you, it's so wide ranging, but they're, yeah. each one of them is connected to her in a moment or an anecdote or an incident in her life and in some way, and uh, I'm not sure how you want to, which one you're playing now, right. but whichever one you play, I could. We got the stones. Go. She was, she was at this session, and she was at Altamont. <laughs> oh, and wow. she read their tarot cards the night before, and she knew Altamont was going to be a disaster. And it was. But she went. Yeah, and it was. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. Time for change. Kill 
G.E. Smith here, and you're listening to WLNG, Lunch on the Deck, with Jessica Ambrose and Bill Evans.
I don't know about you, Lindsay, but when I was a Ute, I used to ride around in a car with my crew listening to that song. <laughs> when, when, that's, when that song was uh, current. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, there, it's con- the reason why I picked that song was one night, Mercy was riding around in a car in Laurel Canyon trying to score drugs with a guy named Chuck Wine, a director. He'd done Chow Manhattan. He was part of the Warhol circuit. She got, they got pulled over, they got arrested, and long story short, that's what led to the dissolution of the GTOs because Frank Zappa was very anti-drug, which some people might be surprised by, but he, d- he did not do drugs. Right. He did not tolerate that with the GTOs, so he basically stopped funding the GTOs because she wow. and Miss Christine from the band got into drugs. But when one door opens uh, or one door closes, another opens because Chuck Wine was about to direct the movie Rainbow Bridge, the concert movie in Hawaii with Jimi Hendrix. He plays that song in the movie. And so Mercy got on a plane to Hawaii because that's how she rolled. And she is in the movie Rainbow Bridge. She spent like a month in Hawaii with all these crazy characters. She's in a couple of the concert scenes. And that kind of got her an in with Shuggy Otis. As I mentioned, she was married to Shuggy Otis, son of the legendary Johnny Otis. Yep. They have a child together, Lucky Otis. She was a very superstitious or spiritual person. She'd had a dream that Shuggy Otis, or you know, she didn't know it was Shuggy Otis, but a man who looked like him, this cherubic angel of a, of a boy, had come to her in a dream and was going to be her soulmate, and they were going to get married. A couple of days later, she saw the album cover, the Al Cooper album cover, that with Shuggy's face. It was like, that's the guy. And she was very good at willing things to make happen. So she eventually did marry, and but they were friends first. But he idolized Jimi Hendrix. And uh, when she was in the Rainbow Bridge movie, yep. and then took Shuggy to the premiere of it, it was on. Yeah, I think it, I think it like impressed him a bit. And then she ended <laughs> up marrying him. And she lived at his house while he was making his landmark real, like, you know, opus of an album, Inspiration yeah. Information, that she suggested he name it that. Uh, the, uh, she has told me that the line, she moves the highs, and that in the title track is about her. And But she was there watching all of it get made in uh, the legendary Hawk Sound Backyard Studio in the Johnny Otis home, where she lived really? for several years. Well, it's, I, yeah, everything's you know, connected. Her it's son, amazing. Her son Lucky's had a good career. Yeah, he, he for a while the Otis like family toured together. You know, obviously Shuggy's been such a recluse for a right. long time, but he has another son for, with his second wife Terry Wilson named um, Eric yeah, Otis, Eric, and they yeah. toured. Eric, Eric's a guitar they, player and really good. Yeah, there's a, obviously you know there's you know Johnny Otis like that's a whole other. I mean well, you know obviously talent runs in the family, but right. I. I will say that Shuggy Otis was supposed to be a Rolling Stone. It's quite famous that he was invited and before they had Mick, I believe before Mick Taylor joined, or it, I can't remember the, if it was to right. replace Mick Taylor or if it was to replace Brian Jones, but he turned it down and Mercy was very bummed about that because she really wanted to be, be a, a Rolling Stone. Stone. For those of you who <laughs> really <laughs> wanted to be in that inner circle. Her mom was upset too. She would have yeah. liked to be. I was going to say, I don't really yeah. blame her on that front. Now, many of you that know Shuggy may not know this about him. Shuggy's still getting royalties from this song. Strawberry Letter? Yeah. Yeah, Beyonce sampled this one. Yeah, so he's doing okay, I think. 
I think he's doing okay. That's, but you know, he, it's quite famous that he was like a, you know, quote unquote difficult artist and he took like three years to make inspiration information. He took all of Sony's money and built a studio in his backyard and, and Mercy was there for all of it. And she also was there, you know, Johnny Otis had all of these, you know, people coming by like Clarence Gatemouth Brown and, you know, I mean, yeah. pretty much like a who's, a who's who. And she was watching all of this happen in her backyard. You know, I'm trying to remember some of the other people, like Cl some of the people that came by were like, you know, Michael Stoller, uh, Johnny Guitar Watson, Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, Amos Milburn, Big Joe Turner, all of these people like Ahmet er Erdogan, they all were just like coming in their right. backyard and all of like the people that Shuggy knew. And so she was again at an energy center, as she likes to say. So here you go. This is a little music for you from Shuggy Otis, the inspiration information took so long to make.
I'm Isabella Rossellini and I am with Bill and Jessica at Lunch on the Deck. Mangia! WLNG with lunch on the deck with our guest, Lindsay Parker. Have you got me? Can you hear me? Yeah, she can hear you. Excellent. Hello, yes, I can hear you. Oh, I just totally knocked down everything with my foot, but it's okay. Lindsay. It's all rock and roll. Yeah, Lindsay, I want to know about that song, uh, Watts Breakaway. Is that about Watts in L.A.? Well, he actually had Johnny Otis. Obviously, we all know he was bona fide rock and roll royalty. You know, he'd had a hit record with Willie and the Hand Dive. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was instrumental in the careers of like Esther Phillips and Etta James and Jackie Wilson. I mean, Mercy completely idolized him. And in way, I think she, I mean, she jokingly said she had a crush on her father in line. And like I was saying <laughs> earlier, he brought in a who's who of, of rock and soul royalty it, literally into her backyard. 
But he also had his own church and he had a church in Watts where people like even Victoria Williams used to sing before she was famous. I don't specifically know what that song was about, but he, you know, he really uh, like was a legend. And yeah, he had a church yeah. in Watts. And that's actually what it, I only recently discovered that song. And I just thought it was very vibey and very cool and just like a jam. The next song you picked out is City Freak. City Freak. So do you know who Jabriath is? Because Jabriath is a story in his own. I actually encourage you and your listeners to watch one of my favorite rock documentaries, which is called Jabriath AD. Uh-huh. But in a nutshell, Jabriath was like the first openly gay rock star. Like he, you know, obviously in the glam rock era, like there were a lot of artists like David Bowie being the most obvious example that played with gender, the idea of sexuality, toyed with it, but didn't really come out and say like, I'm gay or I'm queer. Jabriath did in the 60s and the early 70s, I should say, actually, is when he did that. And he was supposed to be the next big thing. He was signed to Elektra for like crazy amounts of money. There was tons of hype. Uh, Jerry Brandt was his Spengali manager. Then it kind of all fell apart. Some of it was probably a reaction, a backlash to the hype. The fact that, you know, Elektra and Jerry Brandt were putting his name on all these billboards and in Times Square. Obviously, probably a bit of homophobia to be in 1971 saying like I'm gay. He had, there's a famous scene in the documentary where he says like all these are other pretend, are pretenders, but I'm no pretender. And they say they ask him if he's gay, and he says uh, asking me if I'm gay is like asking James Brown if he's black. <laughs> <laughs> I but, love wow. this guy. <laughs> but at, interestingly, Mercy was his girlfriend because they just had that kind of relationship. It wasn't necessarily a, a sexual relationship, it was uh, platonic in the physical sense, right. but they called each other boyfriend, girlfriend. They lived together for a couple of years. He used to be in Hair, the musical Hair, oh, yeah. before this, this glam era at the Aquarius Theater on Sunset in Hollywood. And they used to go out into the audience and kind of grab people to come up and dance on stage. And one day he made a beeline for her when she went to see it with some of the other GTOs. And she went home with him and they were together for um, a couple of years, they used to get their drugs from Maxwell Jacobson, oh like God. the actual Dr. Maxwell, oh. like the one the Beatles sang about, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, yeah. it, it influenced Dr. Robert. Yeah. And uh, they had a crazy life. And his story is a, tra- a tragic tale. And like I said, more details about that, but in his documentary. But they had this, uh, you know, unconventional, but, you know, very fascinating relationship, which comprises an entire chapter of the book. And this song, City Freak, which was off, I believe, his second album, that both of which later got rediscovered after being out of print for many years by Morrissey, and Morrissey reissued them. City Freak was written about Mercy, or so she tells me. So I'm choose to believe her. Here we go.
it's Chad Smith from Chili Peppers, and you're listening to WLNG 92.1, and this is Lunch on the Deck. WLNG. You've got lunch on the deck with Bill Evans, Jessica Ambrose, and our guest, Parker. Yeah, Lindsay Parker. Lindsay Parker. She's I'm got choking. this great... I am having... Okay, if you haven't picked up on this already, Lindsay, it's lunch on uh-huh. the deck. And even mm-hmm. though you're in L.A., it's lunchtime for us here in Florida. Yeah. And so Sandra... Bill's wife just made us, normally it's my husband delivering lunch from our restaurant. <laughs> right. But since we're in Florida, he, we are now yeah. having the most delicious salad. Yeah. So I couldn't say your name because I had a piece of chicken <laughs> stuck <laughs> in my throat. Lindsay Parker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but oh I got my God. But we apologize. It's a little early here. I'm still drinking coffee. I'll have lunch 
afterwards. Well, please come to New York, and you know you could do the satellite show from the city, and then you can come on out and uh, hang out in Sag Harbor. We'd love to have you. We the, feed you from our restaurant. Yeah, we do our show from the WLNG Radio Studios. And it goes on to Sirius XM. And, and of course, the show is about having lunch, music, uh, fun, just information, fun. learning a little something. Yeah. Like We get to learn a little something today. And it's so much fun because, like, just now, listening to all these songs and you describing them, it's such a natural transition that we learn more about about you and about Missy. And, you know, I love it. It's worked, uh, it works yeah. out really well. Love that Alice yeah, Cooper song you... because he... Yeah, it was... He and Michael Bruce and uh, the Million Dollar Babies rented a, used to rent a house in Greenwich, Connecticut, and that's where oh, really? that's where they report, recorded part of that song. Was a part of that album, the Million Dollar oh, Babies, was in the Greenwich, Connecticut uh, area, which is well, in our listening area. It's been interesting to you know pick the songs because they're obviously all songs that Miss Mercy or Mercy font to know that you know are related to key scenes or you know anecdotes and stories and chapters from permanent damage memoirs of an outrageous girl her posthumously unfortunately published memoir that I co-wrote with her and one of my favorite stories and actually my favorite photo in the book is the Alice Cooper story which is why I picked this one it took me a lot to track down the photo of this but it had to be in the book I really like went on a full on like you know forensic episode <laughs> really uh, escapade escapade is the word I was trying to use so the reason why I picked that song so um, as I mentioned earlier she went way back with Alice Cooper he before he signed to Warner Brothers the Alice Cooper band was on straight records which and they were label mates that straight records being Frank Zappa's label with the GTOs the one show the GTOs ever did was opening for Alice Cooper and they stayed friends throughout their life but by 1971, Alice signed to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers on Bastille Day, 1971, so July 14, 1971, celebrated what they called a coming out party, this very wild, mythical party at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. So Alice got in touch with Mercy and asked if she wanted to jump out of this Bastille Day, happy Bastille Day cake <laughs> at a party. She was supposed to do it nude, uh -oh. as one does. But right before she was like supposed to get in the cake, someone gave her a bunch of PCP, as one does. She did, pretty much she was one of these people that like took the drugs and asked questions later. Anyone <laughs> hand her a drug? Right. So she was on Angel Dust. Oops. And this party was taking place at the Ambassador <laughs> oh, Hotel. Nice. So like, <laughs> there's recipe. different stories. There's different stories about, but basically how she recalls it is a little different from how Pamela DeBar uh, recalls it. But two things happened. Right before she was supposed to get in the cake, someone very casually, she overheard someone mention, oh, you know, this is the hotel where Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Yes. Probably not the best thing you're about to tell someone before um, they get in a cake while on PACP. Right. Uh, uh, Pamela DeBar remembers that some poor blonde kid who worked at the hotel walked into the kitchen at that moment and Mercy thought it was Ryan Jones come back to life and started yelling, Brian, Brian. But whatever it was, at this point, she was supposed to be stuffed in the cake. She refused to take her robe off. She was wearing this Moroccan robe. Like I said, she was supposed to be nude. So she freaked out, got in the cake in her robe. They wheeled the cake out, and then she was supposed to, like, jump out and be like, happy record release. Instead, she just started, like, throwing cake at people, like, taking crystals oh, cake, throwing geez. it. And there were, like, all of these, like, famous people there, like, members of the Beach Boys. Richard Chamberlain was there. Rod McEwen was there. And there's a picture that I think had been in IW magazine that I had to hunt down right. to get the rights to use, but I found it of her looking absolutely deranged 
even by Alice Cooper 1971 party standards, just throwing cake at people. It's like the best story ever. And, you know, I and that was one of my I was so happy I found the photo of it. It really captured the moment. So where did you find the photo? Well, I mean, it's circulated around, you know, like illegally or whatever, you know, like people. I don't know where it came. I found it on Facebook. There's a pretty active GTO's Facebook group and people post up there. So I knew the photo existed, but, you know, I had to get the rights. And so I went, I don't even know how I did it. I was like Googling and just trying to figure it out. Eventually I saw like a name and um, I actually, the same person who got me the rights to the cover of the Rolling Stone magazine in 1968, that's, you know, um, uh, that Baron Woolman took of Mercy when she was a 17 year old in Golden Gate Park. Yeah. Same licensing people got me this one. And to go back to that, that was like the sixth issue of Rolling Stone. She right. was on the cover of that. And then Baron Woolman ended up taking all the very iconic photos of the GTO. So, like, she's always said that Frank Zappa and Baron Woolman and Chuck Wine, the director of Rainbow Ridge, were like the three men who kind of like made her or made her myth. So, but Alice Cooper was very instrumental to her uh, story and I want to thank him because he not only contributed a really cool blurb to the book but when the Grammy Museum did an online panel about the book he actually participated in it which he didn't nice. have to do he wasn't promoting anything he was just a fan you know he really was came right. mercy. Well, she had a really <laughs> wide range because she goes from there now to Al Green yeah, I mentioned this a bit, but like she was kind of just person when she got something into her brain, especially when she was like feeling that gravitational pull towards the energy centers. The long story short is she was trying to get away from Shuggy because, um, you know, the relationship was kind of driving her crazy. So she decided with a friend to hitchhike out to Memphis with no actual plan because of the fact that they, uh, she just loved that music. She always loved black music and soul music. It was kind of like her, uh, her thing, you know. Um, So, and that had a lot to do with the fact that she was the uh, daughter of like this uh, chronic, uh, a di- gambler, person with a gambling problem, her dad. So they moved around a lot uh, over the to get away from debt collectors, how we say. <laughs> oh, so she liked roots what music a because she said story, she, yeah. You know, yeah. she had yeah she had a crazy childhood. So anyway, her and her friend, you know, hitchhiked out to Memphis and they had literally no plan. They got they just went to Stax Records because she loved everything on the Stax. Oh, okay. And they just showed up. And were, you know, deposited in the parking lot and they had no plan. But then as it was, like they, the Hodges brothers, Teeny Hodges and his brothers walked out while they were just standing there. And we're like, hey girls, they actually wanted to meet the Barquets because Mercy had a real crush on all the Barquets and she ended up working for the Barquets for a while after this. But she, the Barquets came out and then they were standing there and then the Hodges brothers came out and they were like, and they just came up and introduced them and said like, do you want to come to the studio with us? So they went, you know, to, I believe it was High Records, HI, High Records Studio, and ended up sitting in on an Al Green session when Al Green um, was not famous yet. Ended up spending entire week hanging out with the Hodges brothers and all of their friends in Memphis. And, and, and eventually when Al Green became famous and came out to LA to play, play a big forum show, 
she did have a one night stand with Al Green. So she got to, you know, say oh, she did that. So. The Reverend Al Green. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. He wasn't a re I don't think he, he was, was a Reverend. He wasn't yes. a Reverend at that time. No, we'll have to make sure we correct that. Oh my God, I love this. But, yeah, but that was rock and but roll. She was, but you know, it's she funny. was very attracted to talent because she w did not think Al Green was hot when she met him because she thought he was too square. She was used to people who looked like the Barquets, who looked yeah. like, you know, oh, yeah. space aliens when, or people that looked like Shimmy and Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It yeah. wasn't so much, no, it wasn't the fame thing, actually. I want to correct you on that. It was, she, he showed up. They went to, the stories, they went to Al's house, picked him up to go to the studio. She thought, who's this square looking guy? She was used to guys who looked like Jimi Hendrix or Shuggy Otis or the Barquets, you know, rock and roll freaks. Um, he wasn't famous yet. It wasn't the fame. It was talent that was her aphrodisiac. Okay. He went to the studio and he opened his mouth and she was, and she was, she heard him saying, and then she was disappointed because he'd already kind of propositioned her and she turned him down because she thought he was square. And after she heard him sing, she regretted this. So she <laughs> was on a mission to get another chance with him, wrote him a sexy letter. It did the job. Ah. And uh, later they met up in L.A. in a hotel room and, you know, it was on. It was on. It leads to love and happiness. Oh. Yeah. Something that can make you do wrong. Make you do right yeah. mm -hmm. Love and a happiness Someone's on the phone Three o'clock in the morning Yeah Talking about How she can make it right Yeah Yeah Happiness is when You really feel good about somebody There's nothing wrong Being in love with someone
listening to Jessica Ambrose and Bill Evans. It's Lunch on the Deck on 92.1 WLNG, Sag Harbor, New York. WLNG. You're probably uh, way too uh, young to remember the disco <laughs> era. Uh, I'm sure you've written about it. But um, uh, I had my own equipment in high school and college, and I used to make enough money to get through college playing that song. <laughs> Soul Finger by the Barcades. That's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She was, Mercy was a very big fan of the Barcades. As I said, that's what brought her out to Memphis in the first place. And she ended up working for them. She ended up working for their manager, Sandra Newman, and accompanying them to Soul Train set a bunch of times. She ended up at Watt Stacks. Like, you know, she was right. everywhere, but she was very into that vibe. That's pretty cool. We're listening and talking to Lindsay Parker. She's got this great book called Permanent Damage, Memoirs of an Outrageous Girl. And we're talking about Miss Mercy Fontenot and uh, really the originators of the first uh, girl, all-girl band, really. I think so. One of them, I mean. Is that fair to say since it's 1968? Uh, I mean, I don't know the exact timeline. If you're talking about like bands that like played instruments and, and wrote their, you know, wrote like kind of legitimate songs. I mean, obviously there's bands like Fanny and stuff, but you know, they definitely were, I, I mean, I liken them to the Spice Girls because they were more like a girl gang that sort of like were, you know, they were groupies or scenesters or whatever, but they all had their own characters. They had a lot of female fans that looked up to them. And actually Mercy back then tended to have the most female fans because she was kind of, even though she was such a freak, she was kind of the most relatable. And I don't mean this in any 
way to cast shade because she says this in the book herself. But, you know, she wasn't a conventional beauty. At the time she was in the GTOs, you know, she, I mean, she looked very weird. She dressed very weird. She really didn't dress for the male gaze. She didn't dress to be sexy. She was the heaviest of the, the seven GTOs. She did not look like, I guess, what maybe some people would call a groupie when they think of what that means. Right. But, you know, she was living her best life. And even though she, like, looked weird and looked like a freak, she was getting rock stars and hanging out with A-listers. And I think a lot of uh, young girls who liked the GTOs gravitated towards her the most. Rolling Stone magazine gravitated towards her the most. They put her in the magazine more than anyone. They put her on the cover twice. They called her like their favorite girl of 1968. So like, you know, she yep. was living the dream. And here you have Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show spent a whole career and never got on the cover of the Rolex. Yeah, exactly. They write well, a song about yeah, it. True. <laughs> and the other women, the other two from the GTOs, did they have the same success with these relationships that Miss Mercy did? I mean, there were seven GTOs and, you know, a couple of them were more part-timers. I mean, Pamela DeBar, obviously, we know her history. She dated right. Mick Jagger. She dated Jimmy Page. She was married to Michael DeBar. She dated a lot of people. Right. Um, one of them did marry John Cale from um, the Velvet Underground. Um, there was others that had, you know, relate, uh, defined success. You know, they weren't yeah. relationships that, <clears throat> and most of them, you know, but yeah, they all like definitely like dated or married, you know, uh, famous people. Unfortunately, only two of them are alive now, and almost all of them died young. Pamela obviously is alive, and, and uh, Sandra is alive. The uh, Mercy, the fact that she made it to 71, when if you read the book, you see. Yeah. Uh, amazing. She cheated death. It's yeah. more than nine times. Yeah, nine exactly. Yeah. But she had a very strong will to live. Some people think because of some of her destructive behavior that she had a death wish, but she absolutely did not. She wanted to, I mean, like I said, in her later years, she still considered that the best uh, time of her life. And she did die of cancer and when she, and she beat it two times, went into remission twice before it took her in the third time. But she tried every possible treatment, you know, that was at her disposal when the doctors were basically telling her there's nothing we could do. She still wanted to try. So she had, she loved life, but she made it to 71. Most of the other, you know, some of the, there was one who, we're not sure if it was suicide. Mercy never seemed to believe it was, but there was one that it was suicide. There was one that got ill with cancer. There was one that died of AIDS, Miss Lucy. They, you know, they definitely were a, some there was some tragedy in the GTO story, but they definitely had fun in their in their younger years. You have this flying burrito brothers song in here, Hippie Boy. Yeah, actually Mercy sings on this as does Pamela DeBar. Pamela was very into country music and the other GTOs kinda didn't get what the the burritos were doing. But Mercy did. She actually says in the book, obviously, yep. because she lived to be 71, she lost a lot of people, you know, like I said, you know, there, but for the grace of God went her, a lot of people who like Janis Joplin and stuff. In fact, Jet, she took from the same stash of heroin that killed Janis Joplin. That's a longer story. And she gave some of that heroin to Graham. Long kind of convoluted story you'll have to read. But anyway, she could have, a lot of peers, Jimi Hendrix, Janice Toplin of Mercy's died young. And I did ask her, like, which one of all the people you lost hurt you the most? And Graham was the one. She kind of never got over it. They were close friends. They never dated. It was not a romantic relationship. Most of her relationships were more a friendship, actually. She kind of liked to be one of the guys. But they became friends after Pamela took her over to Graham's house. Pamela and uh, Mercy ended up going to almost all of the burrito sessions. They were at the Wild Horses one. They sang on this one. And, you know, uh, they were they were extremely close and, and unfortunately did heroin together, but they were extremely close. And um, she never quite 
got got over this. And her dream was always to have a, a mercy belt in rhinestones like Graham's. Oh, oh yeah. Happy to say. Uh, here the I, and Did you really? I have it back now. Oh, nice. Oh. Yeah. Walking down the street the other day, a sight came before my eyes. It was a little hippie boy, I must have been twice his size. His appearance typified his strange breed. Gaudy clothes, long stringy hair hanging down. I'd seen perhaps a thousand in my hurry trips to town. As he walked beside me on down the block I noticed no unpleasing smell He might have been on the weed or even LSD But if he was, I couldn't tell So we walked together that way through this neighborhood Finally he turned around to me and he, he said Friend, you know we're a million miles apart something we can enjoy the sunshine and the weather so why don't we put our differences aside and just talk to each other you see this box beneath my arm to you it's plain it has no charm but to someone dearest to my heart this box has played a tragic part about his life and how he died but if anyone else could speak for him I guess I'm qualified this boy was in Chicago he didn't know why he was there he was with his family and friends and he didn't really care you might have been one of those who saw the struggle there on your television screen tragic thing is, so much else happened that no one else could have seen. A stranger handed this boy a dollar to do a simple chore, to carry a package to a nearby hotel, and when he returned, he'd get two more. But when he came back, he sort of lost his way, walking through the crowd. One of the things you ask yourself, how the Lord allowed. But when he was found, he was like he is now, dreaming, sweet and still. And in his little hand was a crumpled dollar bill. Now you can take that dollar Get four cents on it, compounded quarterly at any downtown bank. So they can back some hot new tank or atom bomb. But what I'm gonna tell you now, you can stay or you can leave. You kind of listened to my story so far. 
one more thing. It's the same for any hippie, bum, or hillbilly out on the street. Just remember this little boy and never carry more than you can eat. Now could you help us sing this song? Yo, yo, this is hit songwriter J.T. Harding and author of the new book, Party Like a Rockstar. You're listening to my rockstar pals, Jessica and Bill, on Lunch on the Deck. Quit it, Lord, did you ever try? 
Well, you can tell that's lit, written by Gil Scott Heron. <laughs> it's Lunch yeah. on the Deck with Bill and Jessica. And we've got Lindsay Parker here who's with us today. She's got a great book out. It was... It's, it's re your book has really gotten a lot of critical acclaim, not just by people who read books or just not by media, <laughs> but by people who were there, you know, actual yeah. people. So that's really uh, an attribute. And congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Also, it's it's great to get the word out. It must be. Is it just so bizarre to finally after seeing working on it for so long to finally see it getting out there? Yeah. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Mercy isn't here anymore. So she died in uh, July 2020. And I last time I saw her was February 2020 on her uh, at her birthday party. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. So we actually signed the book deal in or not. We got the offer in May and that was completely, you know, on the phone and stuff. We always were going to celebrate. And then um, she signed the, pretty much on her deathbed, she signed the book deal about a week before she died. Wow. We weren't got to announce it yet. We announced it ap the day after she died because people were asking whatever happened. She was very uh, excited about the book. And I knew, you know, she was ill, but I'd always hoped or kind of honestly assumed she'd be around to promote it because she yeah. had skirted death so many times. Sure. Yeah. I thought she was Keith Richards. You know, I thought she was just going to outlive us all. <laughs> Keith Richards. So, you know, I snorted I mean, I really me father, did. man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really did. I mean, it, if you read the book, you see she put herself in harm's way or, or ended up in harm's way. It wasn't always of her own doing, but, right. you know, she, she definitely led a risky life. So... You know, the fact that she died of a, a relatively, you know, common, benign thing, you know, cancer in her 70s, as opposed right. to all the other ways what she What kind of cancer did she have? It was, it was liver cancer. Okay. Well, I think um, that, that, was, what I like about your book, uh, Lindsay, and it's called uh, Permanent Damage, Memoirs of an Outrageous Girl, is that if you want to be in the music business, you want to write in the music business, do what you do, write, you know, for, for Yahoo and... Um, uh, you want to work for a record company, uh, you really need to read this book because you, even like us, like us old guys here who were around in the 60s, uh, younger people should read this book for, for a historical perspective because it really gives you not only about Miss Mercy, but an education of what music was like and its roots in the 60s and 70s. Well, thank you so much for saying that. It means a lot coming from you. Well, or coming from anyone, no, but especially no, you, because as you keep telling me, you were there. Well, tell, it's just that I, you know, I was, a, I was a fan of all of these. I mean, I know all these songs uh, the, from the Flying Burrito Brothers, the Barquets. Uh, I introduced the Barquets in college at my school at Mississippi State University. When I saw them, I was like, them and George Duke are the funkiest people I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. They were very ahead of their time. Yes. A lot of people like, you know, Rick James and I would I would say Outcast. I mean a sure. lot of people took Sly Stone, you know, definitely mm -hmm. they were they were out there early with that. But you know, you have um, X and the Gears and you got some Dylan in here. You know, there's just a a, a wide range of music uh, that uh, is is in here that Ms. Mercy uh, lived in her life. I think people ought to, ought to know about that and know about how music is made, how you know, we had, I've interviewed Booker T, and he said, yeah, buy a house in L.A. Mm. Uh, you know, he said, Bob Dylan came over, and we wrote songs. And the Beach Boys came over, and we wrote songs. And all that whole L.A. music scene came over and, and wrote songs at his house. And that's what they did back then. Yeah, they didn't do it on Zoom. 
<laughs> no. Or in, you know, sending files back and forth. I mean, as I said, when Mercy was living at the Otis family home with a famous family home, she witnessed all this going on in literally her backyard. And her son, who is a third generation musician, now that's where he grew up for much of his life. So, right. you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, a real rich history that right. she... Yeah, the record company gave Shuggy the money for a recording studio, and the poor Jackson <laughs> 5, they had to fly to L.A. to record songs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> well, Shuggy definitely burned a lot of bridges because of the fact that he developed this reputation for being difficult, which he was, you know, as a husband as well. That's why when you just played Home is Where the Hatred is, I almost named the book, I, I suggested it as a title. That The only story of that is obviously I mentioned Esther Phillips who sang that version of the song. Yeah. Johnny Otis was instrumental in her career, but Mercy always said she thought that song could be the theme song of her life because she was a junkie at times, but also she had a hard home life when she was uh, a kid. And then when she moved into the Johnny Otis home with Shuggy, even though it should have been the happiest time in her life, being married, a new mom, and having all of this amazing musical history literally being made right in front of her, yeah. you know, they had a fraught and difficult marriage. So home was where the hatred was. So that was why. And that was one of her favorite songs. You got a Chuck Berry song in here. The story of Chuck Berry, I'm not, I don't know how, like, uh, like how much I can say on the air. I think this is probably a family-friendly <laughs> show. I'll just say that probably the most shocking sexual escapade. I mean, we know about Chuck Berry. We know about some of the things he was known to do and uh, some of his fetishes. So I'll leave it at that. But she tried to get, she got with Chuck Berry at Disneyland, as one does, the happiest place on earth. <laughs> he was playing Disneyland and she and the Otis family went down to uh, watch him perform. And uh, she always had a crush on him since she was a child growing up in the 50s. She still thought he was fine. Right. And uh, she would, uh, there's a love triangle in the book between Mercy, Shuggy Otis, and Terry Wilson, the daughter of band leader Gerald Wilson, who ended up becoming later uh, Shuggy's second wife and the wife he was with until she passed away. So anyway, long story short, Mercy wanted to get Shuggy jealous, so she made a play for Chuck Berry that depending on how you define the term successful was successful but it was weird it yeah. got dark and it got weird was but it, she was a big fan was it right by the dumbo ride at disneyland what <laughs> there was a ride going on there you go uh, it right. was in his it was in his trailer backstage um, oh i guess they used to have rock concerts at disneyland so yeah only her would do you know she made she made a play and things got weird and um when there's been reviews and stuff for this book yeah. that this seems to be and uh, without giving away Wait, this was a story I actually had to fight Mercy to put in the book because um, she was a bit embarrassed about it, She and I, which was weird because very few things phased her or embarrassed her. But it's in the book, and that's why this Chuck Berry song is on my playlist today. I love this. It's 52-1, <laughs> W-L-A-G.
and you're listening to Jessica and Bill on Lunch on the Deck on 92.1 WLNG Sag Harbor. Try the corn chatter. It's delicious. Jessica and Bill with Lunch on the Deck brought to you by Estia's Little Kitchen. Saturdays from 11 to 3 on 92.1 WLNG. phase of Mercy's life. As I mentioned, she had many eras and, and many um, times when she went to energy centers and she had a, a she did her dime in the LA punk scene. Yeah. I, I'm picking up on that. Before we go too far, though, we have not touched on, you can tell it's lunch on the deck. Here we go. The dishes being done in the background. Um, Charles Manson. Oh, yeah. She wasn't friends with him. Just want to say that. But when she was in San Francisco, she did um, live in a 
in an apartment building where he was there. Uh, you know, I don't think know if he lived there, but she did hear him next door in her apartment talking about race wars. She could hear it through the wall. She could hear him having that conversation and, you know, saying some stuff about how there was going to be blood in the streets and stuff. And then, you know, well, but he, happened. He, but was, she, he was also around the music scene, too. You know, he was yeah, he really, wanted, I mean, I he really he, wanted to be a music artist. I mean, if you know the whole story, we're going off on a bit of a tangent here, yeah. but a fascinating one. The whole story with Terry Melcher yeah. and, and uh, you know, a lot of people, including myself, believe that when he went over to Sharon Tate's house that night, he was there to avenge a record deal gone wrong. Right. He thought he was going to get That's a deal exactly. through with Terry Dennis Melcher. Wilson. He was a, yeah. yeah, and he was a, because that house had been rented to Terry before. Yep. And a lot of people probably think right. that's why he went there. Yeah. And it could have, you know, been Terry who ended up being that's right. the victim. That Terry Melcher is so. Doris Day's son. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, I actually did not know that. No, and really? he became, you know, a very famous record producer. And mm -hmm. uh, I've heard that too, though. I've heard that. Yeah, story they, they was too. looking for him. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Well, that that was so. She just knew him from. That was really a different era then. If he's in San Francisco. Yeah, she said. I'm trying to remember. I'll actually look it up. The exact thing. It's kind of like a bizarre story. But so she was. He was in the adjacent. She was in San Francisco. She had a roommate. You know, back when you know you could live in these Victorian houses for like nothing. Right. And they were like turned into like uh you know apartments that cost fifty dollars a month. Right. And she said she could hear him next door. He was talking to a black man about quote unquote blood wars that were going to um, erupt due to racial. Uh, unrest. She was, as she says in the book, sky high on really good LSD. Mm. Oh my so God. So how much she remembers clearly of this. I, I mean, go, I'm glad it was good LSD because hearing Charles Manson talk about race wars while you're on acid could definitely lead to a bad trip. <laughs> oh, yeah. But she said, she said, uh, she was just sort of listening to them and he was talking about how there was going to be blood flooding the streets. And I'm reading the book passage here. She says, he sounded very matter of fact, not like he like he was just trying to warn this guy, like, hey, this is going to happen. It's inevitable. Just giving you a heads up. Didn't sound like he was threatening the guy or whatever, more just like he was like stating facts. And this was about two years before the murder. So um, wow. that's but the other thing that's weird is she said that later a friend of hers went down to Spawn Ranch and came back and said, hey, Charles Manson knows you're a vegetarian. He knows everything you do. And she didn't phase her because very few things phased Mercy. She just said, well, that's nice. And then she made a salad, speaking oh, of lunch geez. on the deck. <laughs> didn't, I mean, you would kind of think if someone's like, hey, this guy knows everything you do. He yeah. knows you're a he vegetarian. He might, might bother you a little bit. Tell he us about... there's going to be riots in the street. But yeah, nothing phased her. You picked this song from X, uh, Soul Kitchen. Yeah, so as I was mentioning, she uh, very much was in the punk scene. She actually didn't like punk music. She just gravitated towards the energy centers, but she was raised, as we've made clear, her, her heart was in soul music. She loved soul music, so she gravitated towards the uh, leading lights of the L.A. punk scene that were more incorporating that. I do want to mention I put the gears don't don't be afraid to pogo because she used to do their hair when she was going under oh, a different <laughs> She if you see a lot of the rockabilly styles that people like the rock cats and the gears and Billy Zoom and stuff had in the punk scene of LA, that was her influence because she wanted to bring that soul 50s rockabilly element to it because she didn't like the punk music. She didn't think it had soul. She didn't she actually was trying to be like some kind of double agent like infiltrate herself into the L.A. punk right. scene and inject some soul. But of course, X were always incorporating Roots music into their music, and she was very into X and friends with them. And I saw them play. But Here we go, X.
921 LNG. You're at lunch on the deck. Yeah, you've got Bill Evans, Jessica Ambrose, and our guest, Lindsay Parker. You were in the middle of telling us a story. We just wanted to get that song in. But tell oh, us sure, the story. No problem. Yeah, well, like, we're going to play this song <laughs> as next. I was we're, saying, just, <laughs> we're just going to keep as, interrupting no, just you. Real, real quick. It's, oh, it's totally fine. Uh, there's a lot of music to get to. So as I was saying, Mercy was in the punk scene and kind of like trying to influence some of the people. And she gravitated towards the ones that had those kind of roots music influences. And X were her friends. And in, when X had their 40th anniversary show on the roof of the Grammy Museum in downtown LA about three or four years ago, uh, Mercy and Pamela DeBar went and Exine Cervenka from the band saw them in the audience and gave them a shout out and called them pioneers and said it was actually, for, I'm paraphrasing now, I have the video of it. I actually requested the Grammy Museum yeah, give me I this video because they were filming it. That said, uh, they weren't just pioneers. They were girls who just like did something and made me feel like I could do something too. And to see Mercy get a shout out from a legend like Exine from the stage yeah. was really big deal so yeah it was an ex kind of that song was obviously called soul kitchen was kind of a band that she connected to when she had this second life as a punk rock hairdresser awesome i love that that she did that too right the hairdressing yeah and like i said rock the rock cats were one of a band that she really like they were managed by lee black childers who had bowie connections by the way she didn't like david bowie she was offered to be introduced to david bowie and she said no thanks seriously she wasn't a fan she was a fan of Angie Bowie. They became friends later in life. I think they bonded on certain things they'd been through. But yeah, she wasn't. So she why wasn't didn't she like Bowie David thing. Bowie? That's so interesting. She wasn't into a lot of British music. It's kind of funny. She did like the Rolling Stones, obviously, who we played earlier. But yeah. you, might, you might notice that there's no one else on this list who's British. No. She was raised on those teen Italian idols like Fabian and Dion and stuff. And she also was raised on blues music and soul music. And she resented the British artists. She thought they, you know, stole... Oh, the they were they were they were breaking in. She thought that bands like Led Zeppelin yeah. and, and the Stones and even the Beatles kind of, although she did like the Stones, like stole blues music from the originators. And she also blamed the Beatles for wiping all of her Italian teen idols of the 50s off the charts, which kind of was true. <laughs> the British invasion of the funny. 60s was to the to the 50s teen <laughs> idols as, you know, Nirvana right. was to the hair metal band. So she, she held a grudge, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And she just didn't get Bowie's thing. She wasn't, she was very into authenticity and rawness, and um, I didn't agree with her by any means, but she did not see that in Bowie because of his theatricality. I guess theatricality was okay if you were the Barquets, but she just, you know, yeah. it wasn't her thing. So basically, Lee Black, Black Childers, who managed the Rock Cats, and she did the Rock Cats hair. Um, and I also want to mention she did, as I was saying, she did the Gears hair. I just want to mention she not only uh, was in their documentary called uh, Don't Be Afraid to Pogo, but the people also made an entire documentary about her called The Die Job that she says is terrible. I've never seen it because it's out of print. She's not happy about that. But if anyone has a copy of The Die Job, I want to see it. Exactly. Right. Send me. Please send it. Send me the bootleg DVD. Exactly. Well, she, what yeah, about, she, had, she had the whole chapter of her life. What about Bob Dylan? She really loved Bob, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was her uh, favorite artist of all time. She said he wrote the book of her life. At the very end of the book, when she says she doesn't uh, live with many regrets, uh, and there's not much on her bucket list she still wants to do. Her one of the three things that she still wanted to do before she died was she wanted to meet Bob Dylan again, which mm. sadly she didn't get to do. She did meet him once in her life. It's in the book, but she kind of put her foot in her mouth and messed up the opportunity. But she was a huge fan. I picked the song Desolation Room because I mentioned she was homeless in the 90s. 
and she never um she claimed she liked being homeless that she saw as an adventure that she was like a gypsy like you know uh, and uh she kind of romanticized the idea of living on skid row because of this song so that's why so before we go into it though how did she put her foot in the mouth i can't really pass by that sorry (laughs) i mean having okay i'll just say okay being the ballsy woman that she was she saw him parked in a car on the street and she walked up to the car and knocked on the window and said roll your window down which he actually did instead of you know driving away or you know and she started to she managed some break dancers at the time she started to tell him that they should have been in his movie ronaldo and clara and uh he said have you even seen ronaldo and clara to which she admitted no and he said why don't you see this was outside of recording studio in santa monica where he was working at the time in the late 70s so he's i think the late 70s and um so he said well why don't you go watch ronaldo and clara and come back to me and um in this parked car yeah and she or you know come back to the studio and tell me what you thought of it and she was she never did she did she i guess she got embarrassed or whatever so she never took him up on the offer to go back to him and tell him but i was like (laughs) she wanted to tell him you know you've changed my life you're my hero whatever but instead she basically like woman splained how his movie could have been better (laughs) that's okay that was so typical of her though she she sometimes needed a filter can i ask you a question have you ever seen ronaldo and claire (laughs) (laughs) help me out here if you know mercy right it's so typical that she would do that well sometimes Sometimes you can oogle over them, don't you think, Lindsay? You can go up to them. I had a friend who went up to Grace Slick, a radio station owner, owned a bunch of radio stations, and said to Grace Slick, you mean everything in the world to me, and your music, and I was in college, and I related to, you know, everything, why, the whole thing, White Rabbit, all of it. And she goes, well, that's terrible. You must have had a really meaningless life. <laughs> Wow, that did not go well. So here's, you know, here you are in front of your idol and you lay everything out you've ever wanted to say to them and they break your heart. So she probably ended up doing the right thing anyway. Exactly. Little Bob Dylan here, 92.1 WLNG. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors The circus is in town Here comes the blind commissioner They've got him in a trance One hand is tied to the tightrope walker The other is in his pants Cinderella, she seems so easy It takes one to know one, she smiles And puts her hands in her back pocket Betty Davis style And in comes Romeo, he's moaning Says you're in the wrong place, my friend. You'd better leave. 
isolation room Now the moon is almost hidden The stars are beginning to hide The fortune-telling lady Has even taken all her things inside Except for Cain and Abel And the hunchback of Notre Dame Everybody is making love Or else expecting rain And the good Samaritan he's dressing He's getting ready for the show Second birthday, she already is an old maid. To her death is quite romantic. She wears an iron vest. Her professions, her religion, her sin is her lifelessness. Robin Hood With his memories in our trunk Passed this way An hour ago With his friend A jealous monk Now he looked so Immaculately frightful As he bummed a cigarette Then he went off Sniffing drain pipes And reciting the You would not think to look at him, but he was famous long ago for playing the electric violin on Desolation Road. Dr. Filth, he keeps his world. They are trying to blow it up Now his nurse, some local loser She's in charge of the cyanide hole And she also keeps the cards that read Have mercy on his soul Across the street, they nailed the curtains. 
phantom of the opera In a perfect image of a priest Here a spoon-feeding Casanova To get him to feel more assured Then they'll kill him with self-confidence After poisoning him with words And 
Desolation Row was what we were going to name this show. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good name? But we, really we decided to change it to Lunch on the Deck here with Bill and Jessica. And we are so happy to have Lindsay Parker with us. She's got this great book out, Permanent Damage, the memories, uh, the memoirs, rather, of an outrageous girl. And uh, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. I can't thank you guys enough for letting me have lunch with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, you are like an encyclopedia of information. It's really great the way you have all these stories and the details, and it's amazing. I mean, it just oh, must wow. have been so hard for you when she passed. Yeah, it, it is. I was just saying this actually last night. You know, it's we're coming up on two years. In July, it'll be two years of her of her dying, and two year. It's been more than two years since I've seen her. And I've had to talk about, you know, I, I was sort of, I had the rough draft of the book approved by her before she died, but I had to, you know, revisit the book so many times as we were shaping it up for publication. Right. As I say, like hunt down photos. I had a lot of her personal effects, you know, her photos, her diaries, some of her clothes. I'm actually wearing a necklace she gave me right now. But when the book finally came out, you know, I put, I found myself in the position I am right now of having to be the spokesperson when, you know, her, you know, I'm the second build on the book, even though I had a lot to do with shaping the, you know, I basically took her spoken words and turned it into a book. If she had been alive, um, she'd be doing these interviews. Yeah. Either alone sure. or with me. Yep. So I've kind of become the spokesperson, like the keeper of her legacy. But it's like, I've been talking about her for so long. There are times when I feel like she's still here, but it's almost like she's become kind of an abstract character if that makes sense like i'm talking about a fictional character sure. every once in a while i hear her voice i still have a whole bunch of voicemail messages on my phone that i actually can't bring myself to listen to but every once in a while i see like a video of her you know an old a video on social media or something and, and or actually i watched the jabriath ad documentary a few months ago and she's in that and it just jolts me yeah like yeah i it's like it's been a good way to like keep her legacy alive in my own heart as well as in like you know just getting her legacy out to the world but it's almost like be she's almost become an abstraction because she was such a mythical larger than life person right, but right. yeah her her dying was was devastating to me it's one of the biggest losses of my life you know oh, well, as we this. related i felt well, like we were family well in her passing was there a funeral and what's happened to her estate and all that kind of thing no, there was no funeral. She um, was cremated, and her ashes are with her, the, her good friend, uh, Cinnamon, who uh, she'd gone to a lot of adventures in the 70s and 80s with, who was a saint and her caretaker mm -hmm. you know, during the hospice time. They, she, did, she, didn't, she actually didn't want people to know she was sick. She, very few people knew about it. Um, I actually at first had been told not to even really say you know, how she'd passed or whatever. She, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying that she didn't want people to feel sorry for her. Right. She didn't want visitors towards the end. And a few people knew she was sick. And I always remember this one time. It was one of the, I might've actually been the last time I saw her. It was a birthday party for her 71st birthday party at Pamela DeBar's house, February 15th, 2020. She was sitting on the couch in her turban or maybe a, it was either, no, she was wearing a crazy wig because she took advantage of that. She lost her hair to just wear crazy wigs. Every, you know, towards the very end, she was very fashionable. And uh, someone came up to her who I guess knew she was sick and was like, hey, mm -mm. how, you know, kind of gave that yeah. sad, like, yep. hey, how are you doing? And Mercy like looked up her and goes, what? <laughs> don't look at me that way. Oh, yeah. Don't feel sorry for me. So, yes, most people didn't know. 
yeah. that she was sick and she didn't want a big funeral or whatever. I, in a, I, she wanted to be remembered, which is why I think this book was so important to her, but she, want, she didn't want to be remembered as sick or dying or anything. And so her, you know, her state obviously is, is lucky, Otis. She survived by her son. But when you were doing the book with her, how often did you get together with her, would you say? I mean, was this like every week or hour? Oh, I mean, yeah. At least once a week, probably more. She really enjoyed it. I feel like she was disappointed once I told her I had enough in after like uh, literally about two years of meeting up with her and going over stories and trying to draw, <laughs> like, jog her enough memory. Enough already. Which, which, no, she wanted more. She, uh, you know, it was hard to sometimes get to jog her memory because of all the drugs she took. And also we're talking about things that happened 40 or 50 years ago. But once I finally, after two years, it was the opposite of enough already. I was, she was like, well, when are we meeting this week to work right. on the book again? I'm like, you know, I actually think I have finally enough transcripts and enough information. I go, so I'm shifting into the next phase, which is I'm going to be spending my spare time on top of my two jobs writing at you know taking your words and shaping it into something which what something semi-linear which was you know honestly not the easiest thing i've had to do and she was disappointed i think she'd be like well let's let's like meet up to like yeah go over yeah. the marketing yeah. or like she oh, really like she loved yeah, it yeah they were, well, you once you yeah. jogged her memory right you she kind of got on a roll and and, and well, we just yeah, and she well, started remembering companion. stuff. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. but she probably yeah. loved the friendship that she had with you. Yeah, and it continued to the very end. So, like, long after we were done, you know, when we did the book together, a lot of times it was over dinners or lunches or, you know, coffee or whatever. And, and we went out to a lot of things. She was very into, like, RuPaul's Drag Race, which sort of goes back to her interest in people like the coquettes and gender bending so like i took her to like a lot of rupaul's drag race events which is very interesting because the mask which was a, the club where she discovered punk rock uh, in la the very famous mask is now the site of world of wonder that um produces world <laughs> yeah. rupaul's drag race so like again energy all about the energy centers we, we socialist she liked music and um we went to concerts together and you know we we definitely had a friendship that i think definitely went beyond the normal like author subject co-writer relationship you know, tell me about this song why i got her to open up when uh, a house is not a motel by love what is that all about well obviously love arthur lee and love was one of the most important bands of the la scene she ended up dating him later not in the 60s or 70s but in the 90s oh she got into crack she had a period, this was the period that goes with the homelessness, you know, the Desolation Row era of her life, the era where she was found on the street by Rod Stewart. As I want to point out, she did not feel sorry for herself. She uh, enjoyed the nomadic life. She liked living off the grid for a few years, and she actually picked up a lot of survival skills during this time because she ended up, she developed a skill of being able to like forage in trash and find treasures that she, she could sell, like vintage books, records, clothes. And then when she got clean, she worked for 20 years at Goodwill, where she ran the auctions and put aside the stuff that she knew was going to be, you know, um, shouldn't just be oh out on the floor at Goodwill yeah. for a dollar. It should be auctioned off on the Goodwill's auction site. I also want to point out that City Freak song by Joe Bryant. It actually says in it, she works at Goodwill Industries. So that was prophetic. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, during this probably darkest time of her life, the 90s, before she got clean. She was living a double life. Sometimes she was homeless. She was married for a while to a really abusive guy. But she also was still hanging out with Pamela DeBar and going to fabulous parties with Terrence Trent Darby and Michael Hutchins of NXS. And during this time, she developed a relationship with Arthur Lee from Love, who was also on crack at the time. Their relationship sort of centered around that. And uh, he had just gone out of jail. They were not good for each other. They, you know, chaos unfolded. 
everywhere they went, and they, but they had a very tumultuous relationship uh, for about a year, shortly before he died. And a house is not a motel. They spend a lot of times, as crackheads do, I guess, living in motels and right. getting up to no good. Oh, yeah. Very harrowing chapter of the book. A whole chapter. It's actually a chapter about Arthur Lee, and the book is called A House is Not a Motel because every chapter is named after a song. So that's why I chose this song. I've got no shackles You can come and look if you want to Through the halls you'll see the mantles Where the light shines dim all around you And the streets are paved with gold And if someone asks you, you can call my name You're just a thought that someone Somewhere somehow feels you should be here And it's so for real to touch, to smell, to feel, to know what you are here. And the streets are paved with gold, and if someone asks you, you can call my name. You can call my name. I hear you calling my name.
everyone. This is Dan Bailey from Dan Bailey Tribe, and you're listening to Lunch on the Deck with Jessica Ambrose and Bill Evans, WLNG 92.1. Jessica and Bill with Lunch on the Deck, brought to you by Estia's Little Kitchen, Saturdays from 11 to 3 on 92.1. WLNG. Yeah. 
Jessica, have you ever heard that song before? I have. I really like the beat. Isn't that great? With it. Yeah, exactly. So good. I know. I wish everybody could watch the Zoom or us because... <laughs> You know, uh, we're, we're dancing. We're rocking out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Lindsay's dancing. Yeah, we're dancing. But that was their first number one hit, actually. Was it? Yeah. I'm surprised well, by that because it was a little later in their career. Well, I mean, not in but... America. In Australia, that was their first hit. Oh, I see. And their bass player, yeah. I interviewed him. His name is Gary Gary Beers. Gary Gary's <laughs> two Gary's. Yeah, Gary Gary Beers. You really hear him playing the bass on that song. You're just it's joining a very us. Very vibey song. Yeah, we're with Lindsay Parker, who's our guest. She's written this wonderful book, Permanent Damage, Memoirs of an Outrageous Girl. It's the story of Miss Mercy and the GTOs. And this has been a lot of fun having you on today. You are very, very good at what you do. <laughs> As are you guys. It's flown by. We went into extra innings, actually, and it's it, it amazing. Feel we're, like we did. Exactly. We're going to have to deliver this all to Sirius, and they're going to have to edit down and take their two hours of it. But yeah. we couldn't cut any of the songs out because each one had such importance, you know, is the reason you put it in there for Miss Aww. Missy. Yeah. Now, we want to remind everyone you're on Sirius XM, the volume channel, also 106. You're on every day. Yeah, as I, yeah, it's called Volume West because we're the L.A. based show, you know, uh, has kind of an L.A. slant to it. I'm an L.A. native, born and raised and proud of it. It airs every Monday from, we have our supersized episode from four to six, which I co-host with Davey Havoc from AFI. And then it's on from five to six. These are Pacific times, but you can, it's either at 7 p.m. To 9 p.m. on your coast, or uh, 8, I'm so bad at math, 8 to 9 p.m. And tell on, us uh, about the show. The other days. It's a very, um, you know, obviously it's uh, Sirius XM. And if for your listeners on WLNG who don't know, it's kind of like, I guess the best analogy is it's like what sports radio is to sports. Volume is to uh, to music. It's a talk radio station where we talk about music. I interview a lot of people. It's one of my, one of my favorite things to do, not just in my career, but in my life. Is yeah. to interview people. It's fun to be interviewed. You know, I, I obviously like to talk. So, you know, it's kind of a dream job that someone's actually hired me to, like, talk about music sure. for a living. It's, yeah. I do that anyway. But, but it's a hard job um, to do five days a week. You got to yeah, do your no research. Kidding. You know, we, we do it one day a week, which is more than we can handle. So. <laughs> well, hopefully I made it easy for you. You That's did. Very. You did. You really Absolutely. did. Absolutely. I know. Awesome. So you uh, were hoping someday, somehow, you're going to make it to Sag Harbor New York and come to our studios live because it would be such fun to have you there and to be able to serve you lunch now that we just ate our lunch on the camera with you. Yeah, she I watched, know, it's actually, you Jesse. know, it's, well, it's coming up on noon here on the West Coast, so like okay. now my, I'm starting to have an appetite, so I will have my lunch okay. on my deck after I sign off from exactly. this. I've, okay, I've developed good. an appetite from all this talking. Exactly, I would think, exactly. <laughs> but thank you so much, and I can't wait to get the book. We get it through Amazon. Yep, anywhere where good books are sold. I want to say it actually went to number two on the music biographies awesome. list. Awesome on Amazon, on Amazon Kindle's list. It, I couldn't get to number one because of that damn Dave Grohl. He's been in the number <laughs> one know, spot forever, but know, Mercy was on the charts. Like she all freaking Foo Fighters. Nah, he's a rut. Yeah, he's a rock star, so I understand. But the fact that Mercy was at number two, she was a rock star in her own right, and she always right. wanted to be on the charts. All right, well, so we still have time. She might still get to number one. You yeah, never know. you yeah. never know. Dave Grohl's pretty hard to dislodge, but I took the screenshots, because <laughs> screenshots are forever, and seeing, seeing it in between, it was like right in between um, the Foo, a Foo Fighters and, and also like, a, I believe, a Led Zeppelin book. Here, I'm looking at it now. It was right in between 
uh, Storyteller by Dave Grohl and Ginger Baker Hellraiser oh. autobiography. Oh, okay. from Cream. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah, mm, so yeah. she was in good company. And there was another time she was at number two in between Dave Grohl and Led Zeppelin and above Jessica Simpson. So oh. I was like, she's okay. in good company here. Okay, She made here it to number go. two twice. <laughs> Pretty cool. What was Pretty it, what's the name cool. of Jessica Simpson's book, Chicken of the Sea? Is that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's called Open Book. I heard Open it's really book. good. Actually. I, I I'm heard sure it. She's got yeah, I saw reviews that, on it. It's very good. To, but to your point, the thing is, I haven't read Jessica Simpson's book, but I actually would like to. Is yeah. you know, obviously, I like to read books about people whose music I like, and I'm not like you know the biggest Jessica Simpson fan, although I think she's a talented singer. Yep. But sometimes. You don't even have to. The best books are like even if you don't know that much about them, or you're not even a fan. Yes, the stories are there. It's a good book. So I encourage people if they've never heard of Miss Mercy, which I'm sure a lot of people haven't, it, the stories are in here. Oh, they you know? really and That's are. what matters at the end of the day. It's really yes. and it's so well told. You've done a great, you great job. You did your homework. Aww. You ought to be proud. Yeah, you so. really did. Yeah. So thank, thank you. you yeah. Thank you so Once much. Once again, thank you. it's Lindsay Parker. The name of the book is Permanent Damage Memoirs of an Outrageous Girl. You got to check it out. Yeah. And we're not going anywhere. We're going to keep playing the music here. But thank you so much Thanks, for Lindsay. being on our show. Thank you for having me, guys. We loved you. Thank it's you. An honor. Loved it. Had so much fun. <laughs>
live from Estia's Little Kitchen Studios and Broadcast House, it's Lunch on the Deck with Jessica Ambrose and Bill Evans. W-L-N-G.